it's it's so important to um to be enthusiastic about things and i think it will get you much further and if you if you have a natural interest in what you're doing if you um can you can put so much more energy into it and just doing something because you think yeah but that might be might look better on my cv um that kind of takes the soul out of things right and you don't you have no sure way of knowing that that this will be a benefit and what happens is that you end up spending your present time in uh doing something that you'd rather not do maybe or or not doing something you'd rather do. Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo. I'm here with Boston's favourite son, James Heathers from Northeastern University, and a very special guest, Anne Scheel, PhD student at LMU Munich, an open science advocate. And thanks for joining us on the show. Uh, thanks so much for inviting me. I'm super excited to be here. Excellent. Now, geez, you... that's an upgrade. Super, super excited. I issue a challenge to all future guests to be more than simply "it's my pleasure" <laughs> or "excited," but super excited. A new stand that has been set. Deal with it. Raising that... the bar. Raising the bar. <laughs> now, um. How did you uh, how did you get involved in the whole uh, open science movement, Anne? What's the what's the story behind this? Uh, well, I don't I don't really see it as sort of getting on board with a movement or making an active decision to join something. It's more that I um, I was first I first learned about the replication crisis in psychology in uh, 2014. I was doing my masters in Glasgow University and uh, we had. A course about uh, where the whole the whole program was about research methods, but we had one um, one seminar where um, it was more about um, yeah probably reproducibility issues. And uh, Dale Barr uh, had had two sessions telling us about all the stuff that had been going on since 2011, and I had n- I had no idea. Um, and that yeah. was that was it's a good it's a good fun eye opener, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, it was um it was amazing. It changed a lot for me. And uh and Dale specifically told us to get on Twitter and that changed everything for me, I would say. I'm still so grateful for that piece of advice. Um and and from then on I just um yeah, followed all all of the the people who um who had blogs at the time like uh, Simin Vazir or also Daniel Larkins um and it was just endlessly fascinating and I just kept reading about that and um yeah, and from then, and and it wasn't it wasn't active. Deci- it was not like an active decision to get involved with this topic. It was just that this was obviously so important, and mattered for for everyone, everything we do. And um, it, it was very frustrating for me to see that this that there wasn't like a, a switch that that clicked for the whole field at once. You know, we like we we know something's wrong, but. You don't see everything change at once, and and that's sort of infuriating because if you, yeah, if 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 you feel how how much has been going wrong, and and you just see that it's going on going wrong, going in the wrong direction, um, I always felt quite strongly about that, and so it's it's always been, it it just got more and more important for me, and um, when I went to Munich, in um, like like nine months after I went there. Um, the Open Science Committee was founded at the Psychology Department by Felix Schönbrod and mm. um, a couple of other people. And 
Yeah, and, and I just got on board with that because I was so into the topic. Yeah, and it just so yeah, I just happened to to spend more and more of my time on this. And why do you think it was different for you? Because obviously there's there's a lot of people sitting in that sitting in those same lectures with you, and um, people would just would have walked out and shrugged. But what was what was it different? Like why did it sort of impact you or you and other people more than others? Why do you think this is the case? Um, I, you can say you're smarter. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're you're allowed to just go. Well, I've, I I perceive I perceive problems more directly than other people. Frankly, I'm I'm better situated to make decisions about the field as a whole. Thanks very much. And uh, I I see things as they really are. And my classmates are gullible sheep. You 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 can say that. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to. Yeah, I think that's it. Was it was probably like that. Um, no, no, no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. I mean, I was. Uh, I don't. I don't really know. I mean, for once, I'm. I was always very determined to um, stay uh, to to do a PhD and to stay in research. And so, so just doing research has just from the start been been really important for me to get it right. And I'm also. I think I'm a quite an idealistic person, um, and I'm also quite a stubborn person. So I'm. I can't. Like I can't deal very well with situations where you know the right way to do something but the norm is to do it not the right way uh i have i have big problems with like adhering to something that's obviously wrong just because that's what you've always done like i I always i want to do things as good as i can usually and um so so for me this is sort of natural to to do that with research as well or at least with research it's i mean it's it's even more important in fact yeah, there you go. This is this this is this is the wild-eyed, angry, open science advocate that we hear so much about. This is the, this this is the true viciousness laid bare of the new bad people. That's a, that's a pretty that's a pretty common story. I, I feel like there's an enormous amount of people who tell a similar narrative like that. Like it just seems apparent that practice is problematic and that things really should be changed on first principles there's a better way to make stuff correspond to verifiable elements of reality don't get philosophical on me <laughs> um and that's all there is to it and that the the frustration comes and the people going has anyone ever has anyone ever perceived in your opinion has anyone ever perceived you getting frustrated with something as Oh, that Anne. She's a real. She's a real troublemaker. She's very opinionated and loudmouthed and difficult. Because it fucking happened to me. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't. I don't actually know if people have like become upset with me. I, I certainly know that people know I feel strongly about certain things and I get frustrated with certain things. But um, yeah. in general, Could general, these people have been seeing it the same way. They just weren't as um, I don't know as engaged, maybe. Um, so I've yeah I haven't yet been accused of being a very bad person. <laughs> then no you've questioned only... tone. <laughs> yeah, I've I've just um I've managed to sit on on the well I've I've I have very strong opinions about that whole issue, but I haven't been directly accused of uh, of methodological ah. terrorism, uh, so to say. Ah, I love that. That's my. That's easily my favorite epithet 
but I feel like it's very. I wrote this previously. I feel like it's very unfair to use it. Seeing we've got something approximating a kind of apology for that one. It's sort of oh, you know, I suppose I better tone it down. So I feel like it's been retracted, but it's so no, it, good. it hasn't. It actually hasn't. So when um, I don't know if you if you heard that story, but uh, in last September we were at um, uh, DGPS, the biggest German psychology conference, and uh, oh, yeah. Susan Fisk was giving a keynote. And um, on, like, and and her um, and that commentary of hers had had just come out. Well, the it had been leaked uh, like a few days or two days earlier, and so everybody was oh, talking yeah. about it. And then it was her keynote. And um, at the end of the keynote, I uh, I asked her about the commentary, and uh, she naturally said that she she didn't go into much detail because it was like a huge keynote, not too much time, but she offered to um discuss it afterwards which i thought was great i was really surprised by that and 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 me and a few other people uh, actually went to her and we were like discussing with her for 15 or 20 minutes and um she didn't uh take the term back so she actually said that she thinks it's uh it's precise basically no it was it was it was redacted from the, it was, yeah, the and, thing that was yeah. eventually yeah. published as yeah. far as i'm aware yeah, yeah, I, th- I think I think it might have um, dropped out of the uh, of the paper. Yeah, but I, I've heard her personally say that she thinks it's an accurate term. And how was that conversation oh, when, when you that, and when you and your colleagues spoke? We can about? use it. Sorry, nice. <laughs> Sorry, how, can you how was that? Uh, how was that conversation when uh, when you and your colleagues actually spoke to her after the uh, after the keynote? Uh, it was. Well, uh, first I have to say I really appreciate that she did that. Uh, I didn't expect that at all and she wouldn't have needed to do it. She wouldn't even have needed to answer my question because it didn't refer to the talk that she'd given. Um, uh, and I have lots of respect for that. And she really put up with us, um, but it was more of an... It was an ex- like each side voiced their opinions and opinions weren't changed on either side. It said it like this. So... <laughs> um, it wasn't very much of an uh, yeah we just told her why we think um what we think is wrong with her or why we think her commentary is quite well maybe even hurtful and and uh, beside the actual issue um and she said why she thinks it's um why she wrote it and uh, yeah and, and none of us was convinced of the other side's argument productive <laughs> I just well, maybe maybe we could change it. Sorry, go on. Um, no, I, yeah, I think I mean this is an old um, topic now. I mean, we people have been going over and over about this. But one one thing that really bugged me at the time was that um, she just uh, referred to lots and lots of people who come to her complaining about being bullied uh, online and harassed and. Um, in, and I, I care about that. You know, I think this is really important. This shouldn't happen. Um, but if if we just um, if we don't pin it down, if we don't say there in this case or maybe in this class of cases something went wrong, and here's how we can change it. Um, if we just say no, this is bad. Like methodological blogs are bad. That I mean, that's kind of the conclusion you can draw from that. That's just, that's not constructive. That's that's more like. You, you can't take anything away from that and 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 this is just painting something with a very bad brush and um yeah and, and that's what what upset me about it yeah for sure i i would uh i i 
posed at some point in time. I can't remember where. There's a, a nice piece of rhetorical trickery that I think I stole from George Carlin where you replace methodological terrorist with methodological freedom fighter. Oh, yeah, we've been... And, uh, yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, I, <laughs> it changes It changes the framing in a big hurry, I'll tell you that. I'm totally on board with that, yeah. I, I actually, you know, I'm, I'm also... I, I love the term. I'm kind of glad that... She, I'm, I'm glad Susan Fisk gave us that. But... Um, I, I, I'm going to uh, fly to the US for the first time in my life in July, and I kind of worry what will happen if they do. I don't know if they Google my name and terrorism or something <laughs> oh, look, like that. Yes. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure Uncle Sam can tell the difference. That's a. That's a. Yeah. Let's not pretend that. Uh, what are you, What are you coming to the US for? For sips. Is it sips? Yep. Yeah. Are you nice. going? I am not. Huh. I am busy, poor, and distracted. <laughs> and look, I, I really would like to. It's one of those conferences. You know, Dan, Dan has this thing where he's always on Twitter going, people go to more fun conferences than me. It's not fair. All I always time. seem to be catching up with things I like. This is Dan's voice in my head. This is how he sounds. <laughs> I always seem to be catching up with all the fun stuff because other people are doing it, and it's never me. It's never me. Um... And yeah, that's how I feel about sips. I saw the uh, <laughs> saw the agenda and went, God damn it! <laughs> and you know, you know, you know a lot of people who were going. It's a lot closer for me than other people, but I just can't swing it. It's just one of those situations. It's a nice thing about APS being in Boston. I've no interest in the vast majority of the talks, but people turn up. We go, Hey, ha, I live here. Yeah. Do you like beer? I like beer. Let's not do <laughs> sessions. Let's do beer. <laughs> that helps. <laughs> Yeah, no, I can totally relate, relate to that. Neither neither of you came to APS, which was a dreadful shame. <laughs> well, a APS was something that I couldn't afford, so uh, yeah, I, I really know know how it feels. I yeah. actually, you know what? I've been um, even often, even if you um, could get the the travel costs reimbursed somehow, uh, I still often struggle with it as a PhD student. A student, when you just have to uh, pay the money up front and get it back sometime. Like yeah, some, yes, it's sure. a it's a crazy way of doing it. It uh, let, let's yeah. ask people with not much money to stump up a lot of money and then yeah. get paid back maybe six months later. Yeah, it's exactly, just, <laughs> and not not just six months yeah. later, but just we 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 don't know when. Like you can't even plan. You know, you can't even. It's the worst, like, this is how worst system. Yeah, yeah. I, I wish I was. I kind of oh. had that fantasy of of setting up some kind of bursary uh, where you can help students out in that situation. Like uh, master students or and PhD students, early career people, uh, like if they can give you, um, if they can assure you that they will get the money back, you will, um, you will pay the initial costs for them. It would be tricky to do because the system needs to be very fast, obviously. So it really works, but that, I think that would be a great thing to have. That's an excellent idea. And yeah, any, you, any just, you just need to be assured. You just need to be assured of their return. As in, look, I'm going to spend this much. This much is comped according to official policies. That was always when I was a PhD student. I had exactly the same trouble. Um, but look, it comes. It comes back eventually at a non-specific yeah. point in time. <laughs> Isn't that charming? So yeah, the moment you know you're entitled to a certain amount, and they're not going to go. Oh, we changed our mind. You can have less, which universities tend not to do. Um, because policy is policy. That's not a terrible idea. Dan, were you about to call for some kind of crazed industrialist, which, of course, <laughs> is maybe 30 40% of our, our listeners? They're all industrialists. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all Howard Hughes types living in basements, doing stuff like that. Yeah, it's a uh... fun and idea, because I think it's a great idea. 
<laughs> yeah, it's also it's also a cost neutral idea. Well, yeah, I mean, you would have some risk. When, I guess there would be cases. To... I mean, people people could try to. Oh, I mean, there would be cases where you might have trouble getting the money back. So you need kind of some some you need to calculate for, for some kind of risk. But it would be uh, uh, low. Yeah, yeah, um, but, some, but you, you obviously you'd confirm it with the university to start with. You wouldn't just go and yeah. go. Yes, uh, the university will give me ten thousand dollars for a plane trip <laughs> and an ant farm. <laughs> and and a six-wheeled bicycle, and I'm entitled to all this money. Can I have it from you now, please? Yeah, I don't think you, no one's, anyone's going to be escaping to South America on um, the money you could get. That's a, that's a that's a pretty good idea, though. I think there might even be there's there's reasonably progressive universities in the world. Maybe one of them would think about that. Really, you've heard of a reasonably progressive university? What was that exactly? It's not in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, is that racist? <laughs> no, no. But if it's against Germans, it's okay. I think. Like, what? No, that's not a that's not a rule. Yeah, it is. is. It like, rule? yeah, it's it's a rule. Like, we work really really hard to deserve that. So, you're you're safe for like another <laughs> thousand years or something. You cover, you cover James. <laughs> <laughs> Don't make me laugh so hard I cough. It makes, it makes the, the recording guy. clip. It yeah. makes the recording clip. You can't do that. Be less yeah. funny, Anne. God damn it. Now, Anne, uh, a lot of people, oh. when, it, when it comes to open science practices, often think to themselves, oh, I'm just going to wait till a bit later in my career. It's going to be a bit easier. There's going to be less hurdles. Um, hmm. What made you There's get a paper in- about that recently, Dan. Did you see the paper? There's a paper about that. It's a, it's a, we, we, we interviewed an awful lot of early career researchers and what hmm. they actually do. And the reasonably blunt response was, basically, there's no ROI in this for me right now. I was like, this this can't really do anything for me, and I'm stuck on a treadmill that's going very fast. Therefore, I don't give a shit. What? what? Did you see the paper? No. What? What paper was What's that? Ah, oh, well, I'll have to dig it out. It's very difficult to dig things out while we're actually recording. I need some kind of studio wally to do it for me. Which is, um, <laughs> you know, that might have to wait to uh, episode a thousand rather than episode fifty. So you but, don't um, have a studio was... monkey then. No, I'm I'm simian free under all possible circumstances, which pains me greatly. I'd love to have a monkey. Um, I always wanted a monkey when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, It was oh, well, I think I think it was somewhere in Europe, and it was a reasonably broad survey of modern sort of open scientific practices in the most general sense. Mm -hmm. And most early career researchers reported if there was a collective attitude towards it, the collective attitude was uh, people are only ever really going to reward me personally for publishing in journal XYZ, therefore I do that, everything else can screw. Because I, I Which is depressing. Yeah, that's no that's interesting. So if you if you have the, the reference I'd be really interested in that. Because I've I know yeah, another paper that has basically the opposite conclusion. So um Hannah Watkins nice. is has been doing a study on that. I'm not sure if it's if it's uh, published yet, but I think it was at least submitted. So I saw the preprint and um she she went in and surveyed um uh people from all, all career levels so uh, from from student to full professor and and her mm-hmm. um, hypothesis was exactly that right that that people with tenure would be more likely to uh, want to adopt open science practices because they're safe to do it and of course the thing she found is the exact opposite pattern that um, younger 
younger scholars, so to say, are much more likely um, to to want to adopt that. But I, I guess it really depends on the kind of questions you ask, maybe, and how... I think it might be sample or country dependent. I could I'm also... I'm going to hazard a guess that these were from different populations of people in different yeah. places. There's still an awful lot of traditional academia being pulled out at all levels. Yeah, and, and I mean, it, it, I guess... Um, where you where you where you're going to publish and whether or not you want to pre-register are, for example are two very different questions the thing is but there's nothing stopping you from from practicing open science practices and submitting to these these uh so-called prestige journals so i, I don't think those yeah. two things are mutually exclusive you can still you can still do those two things yeah exa- exactly so that that's that would be my so um yeah so i, I don't know about uh, of the paper that um, James mentioned, but uh, if they focused more about where uh, am I going to publish, and maybe for example, is it going to be open access or not, then then I could see that uh, you get the same people who would be pro um, open practices um, would still want to publish in high impact journals that are maybe paywalled, for example. So, hmm. but I, I don't. That's just pure speculation. Mm. Oh, that's what we're here for. This is a podcast. It's all speculation. <laughs> it's all. It's spe- speculation is actually Daniel's middle name. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, I know we probably have a lot of listeners who uh, have heard a lot about open science practices, but um, and as an early career researcher, how how do you how would you recommend to actually start going about doing this? Um. Well, I, I think. Um, I mean, there's there there are lots of of published papers on on many things you can read. For example, on pre-registration. So there's a, a great paper um, by Anna van Tweer and um, um, Rodriguez Sorolla. I'm I'm not sure how how she pronounced both of these names. Um, but um, where you, are they from? Uh, oh God, please don't don't pin me down to that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, it's all right. We're, gonna, we're just going to remember it now. It's a, it's a cue for me to find it later and stick it in the thing. That's uh, we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll Sorry. put it in the notes. Yeah, well, no, I can yeah. I can email you the the reference. Um, and um, yeah, so so there there are just published papers that you can read on on how to implement something. Um, there are of course um, um, maybe you're lucky enough to have some kind of workshop or talk coming uh, or next to where you are. Um, so we have lots of stuff going on in Munich, for example, um, based on our open science committee, um, lots of, of talks and workshops being done on open science in general or on how to do pre-registration, how to do power analysis. Um, although, I mean, this is, it's kind of silly to call this an open practice, right? This is something everybody was always That's supposed so to do. But, um, yeah, we we had power analyses in second year undergraduate. It was just a, yeah. like a normal feature of yeah. how you determine whether or not you get enough people to find a thing. And now, yeah. now people, when you're reviewing papers, they almost get offended when you ask them, "Where's your power analysis?" Like power analysis, but but I have I have thirty per cell. That's the rule of thumb. <laughs> yeah, or, or now or now people. So, go, so here's 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 my thumb. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Thumb. Oh, it's pointing downwards. Oh, new rule. <laughs> You rule. No soup for you. I think what, what many people do now is is um, they they I think people are picking up that power analysis are uh, important, but they're now doing post hoc power analysis and put that in their paper. Ooh. That's what oh, I hear. I don't know oh. if that's a new thing. No, no, I but I think it's increasing. New. It's increasing because uh, there's more um, more of a focus on on power analysis, and so people who 
earlier wouldn't yeah. have put it in at all are now putting in the postdoc power analysis um but but just sorry go on i think what's what's really strange here is that um i think most institutional review boards would actually require people to do power analyses when they're submitting their applications yeah. Um, yeah. So Surely. people should already have these things. <laughs> and if they don't, then IRBs should be more strict with actually going, hey, we're not going to pass your thing unless you have a power analysis. Um, well, I think that's that, that's more common with clinical... I mean, if you're recruiting people who've mm. got stage 2 cancer or you're going to be shooting electricity through people's fingernails... Which we've done. ...that we used to do. <laughs> um, they, they, they have a tendency to say you're only allowed to have as many people as you need to adequately establish that. You can't just go traipsing through fields of undergraduates, shocking them willy-nilly because it's amusing to you personally, Daniel. <laughs> and they they want a justification for why it should be the way it is. And an IRB is full of an awful lot of people who see an awful lot of research. And the chances of them not having come across one considering that any meeting might be, I don't know, somewhere between 10 and 40 studies, the chances of them not having ever seen one. Imagine all of the things that come past them have no, no, uh, no capacity to address how, how much data would be collected. It's absolutely impossible, even at the worst university in history. So they're all familiar with them. The fact that they're not required by... You know? Yeah. But it, it, it still should be because there's this idea that, okay, we need power analyses for medical studies because there's, there's, there's risk. But the whole reason why we have IRBs, well, one of the main reasons is to actually reduce risk as much as possible. And that no matter how innocuous a study is, there still is some sort of risk involved. So to, in, in that respect, then we, should, we, we still should be doing these power analyses. Um, one, in a more practical sense, there are only so many undergraduates in, in, in first-year <laughs> courses. We, we can't be getting them all to do all these... We, we need to be doing as many participants that we need to actually get an appropriately powered study. So we should be doing it, no matter how you know innocuous yeah. the actual study yeah. is. And I think if, if that was the case, like, I, that's why I love the idea of registered reports, because it yeah. just it ticks all the boxes there because you actually yeah. have this okay we're doing this study and we know this is the amount of people that we need because of this power analysis cool great we, we, we actually have much more confidence in the finding we're going to get because we know that it had enough people in there yeah no I, I totally agree with everything you said I, I don't I don't understand why people like we shouldn't set out to do a study that's bound to fail that we we know in advance can't tell us what we want to know and it's that's really because Sorry, I'm, I'm passionate about this. I've been reviewing a lot of underpowered studies recently in, in papers. And the weird thing is, uh, there's a common refrain in papers. Oh, we didn't find a result. Perhaps it was because the study was underpowered. I'm like, yeah. well, why, did, why did you run the study in the first place if you know it's underpowered? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ah. But, we, but that's we failed a, to find a sample yeah. of decent people, but only collected data in public yeah. toilets. Yeah. But, you, you know, in, in, a, in a weird way, that's an incentive to do underpowered studies because you always have that excuse, you know? Yeah. So you never you have um, sort of uh, a weak retreat. You can you can still claim that your uh, theory is true or your hypothesis is true, um, and you don't have to. It's not a severe test. So you like the in the um, in the Lakatosian sense, you're kind of protecting the hardcore of your theory by not actually testing it. 
Oh, can we put that in the clip at the start of the show? That was good. <laughs> that was good. That was a truth bomb. <laughs> I got some. I got some people whose papers I reviewed. I'd like to send that to. Yeah. There you go. Here's here's your review and damning you from on high. That's yeah. perfect. Oh, uh, we gotta take a break, Dan. I gotta I gotta get a, a glass of water and yell at the sky for a minute. We'll be back soon. Welcome back to Everything Hurts Under the Grey Skies of a Future Apocalypse. Meteorites and fire rain down. The chariot from Revelations swoops to the earth and off its steps and shield from LMU, dispensing truth bombs about open science and puppies. <laughs> it's a shame that the listeners can't see you because the visual experience really makes it even more impressive. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, could you do a sensible reintroduction, please? <laughs> no, I think that was fine. But <laughs> but um, we, we, we are back and we are talking um, open science with Anne Scheel. Um, and but before we get back into it, we just want to say thanks to everyone that's been talking about the show online. Um, it is heading into a European or a, a Northern Hemisphere summer at the moment. So a lot of people are including Everything Hurts in their lists of beach podcasts of things to listen to. Oh, Dear God, that is depressing. <laughs> well, I, I, I did see an interesting podcast that I sent your way um, earlier today, James, and it is uh, the world's first open open source science podcast. I think it's called The Method, and basically uh, it's peer-reviewed, so people uh, put forward ideas... And other people um, peer review what they should be talking about on the podcast. So these people are putting their putting their money where their mouth is. But thanks for for tweeting about the show, um, uh, putting putting us in these lists. Um, you can also contact us on Facebook. Just search Everything Hurts Podcast there, where we also post all the links to the show notes as well. Um, and you can email us at everythinghurtspodcast at gmail and send us questions. Quite a lot of people. Um, actually prefer doing that because uh, they talk to us on, on Twitter. It's, it's, it's public generally. Um, but uh, if you have a question or a comment, you can send us stuff there. And also, make sure you rate us on iTunes. That would mean the world to us. It will put a smile on James's face. If you, uh... I'm always smiling. Up yours. <laughs> <laughs> I'm essentially made of smiles. How You're dare bird. you, sir? <laughs> Uh, so rate us, rate us on iTunes um, uh, as well. Um, that would be excellent. But um, today we, uh, you can find Anne on Twitter. She is at Anne M Sheel. That's S C H E E L. And she also contributes to the excellent Hundred Percent CI blog as well, which we will link to in the show notes. Um, and she wants to start a podcast. <laughs> yes, I've heard. I've heard this. How were you? I have said. I have said multiple times on this show that this is a space that should be inhabited by lots of people. Very occasionally, people go. Did you know you have competition with X Y Z? It's not competition. It's the whole thing is underserved. There should be a whole ecosystem of this shit working at any general point in time. 
Um, when you said I want to start a podcast, I went yes, one of us, one of us. What's the well, what's the conception? Well, pitch pitch it to us. Pitch it to everyone. <laughs> well, uh, it's it's quite different from from this, and um, it's also not completely planned out. And I don't know if it's like when it will start and if if it will start at all. It's um, I'm also involved in. Uh, a science communication project called um, Real Scientists, um, which is... Um, oh, is that the German one? Exactly, yeah. So there's um, yeah. Real Scientists, is a, for those who don't know, it's a Twitter account that was found by um, um, uh, by Yupoli. And she... Uh, so the, the, the concept is that um, there's a different curator on every week, like some any real scientist uh, is uh, has the account and just tweets about their work and life as a scientist and the cool thing is that if you follow it you just get uh, to hear from uh, super many different fields and it's really interesting and also to hear what what um um re- research life is like in general and um earlier this year um Jens Föll who's been part who's been one of the uh, moderators of the um of the original real scientist account started a german version of it so a german language version it's called real scientists uh, de and um uh, yeah and i was a curator in in march and for a week and then he asked me if i want to join as a co-moderator so uh, i'm yeah I'm, I'm also doing a little bit of, of the administrative work now it's a lot of fun and his idea was to start a um a, a german podcast just discussing science news and and basically based on on this real scientist idea give people a insight uh to what actual research looks like and what current issues are yeah nice so let's talk about the hundred percent CI for a bit. This is a, this is interesting because you've got a you've got a, f- a a blog with four hosts and you write long copy stuff about science, which is a really interesting way to look, as someone who writes long copy format stuff occasionally. Um, it's a really good way to keep something working to have multiple people who are, are writing for the same identity kind of thing how did you how did you get that started i'm not sure i have three friends so i mean you could probably give me some tips shut up dan you're technically um, my friend even if i have to hit you to make one you say it. one well it's actually it's a nice story because it kind of goes full circle to um a topic we discussed earlier so at uh last september at the dps and that that circle that was standing around susan fisk discussing her her commentary with her um there were um three of the people in that group uh are now doing this uh uh, my three co-bloggers now um so this is the other ones are uh, malte elson um ruben aslan and um julia rora and um, we, uh, I'd known all of them before on Twitter, but just sort of known, like knew the name and and followed them, but but hadn't really met them. And um, after after the conference, we started a Twitter chat together, and uh, also with with uh, Felix Schönbrod and. Um, and and it just at some point like we we got along really well and discussing all these kinds of topics all the time and at some point we just thought well what about doing a blog like how, have you thought about that and i think every one of us had at some point probably thought about starting a blog and and thought it would be lots of work to keep it going and ensure that's good enough and the four of us um it yeah it, it's just it felt really nice and it it was really one of the or maybe the best idea that i had this year or the most best decision i had this year because um, I, I can really recommend starting a blog with 
other people. Uh, and I think one mm. huge advantage is not just that you're not the only one who has to contribute to it, but also we peer review each other's blog posts, right? So I think they get a lot better. <laughs> and also be, you you don't have this, um, it, it really reduces that anxiety of getting something out into the world that has just been reviewed by your own head before. And you, you don't, you have no idea how it sounds like to someone else and um this is this is really great and and i i really love all of the three of them they are all great and extremely smart and extremely funny and it's just uh it's such a pleasure oh such a good story i've got to get me three friends uh, look, as someone as someone as someone who's been in and around uh, internet media for ages i've done a ton of writing in a lot of different formats we've done this for a year now um, it's a really effective format that you've chosen. Uh, long, long copy stuff, especially stuff that goes into detail rather than you know stuff that I, I try to actively avoid now as a writing. What my normal genre, like eight hundred words on why someone is an idiot, can only go so far. This is more like four thousand words as an in-depth look of how they quantify ERPs <laughs> and why this situation is insane. Well, to be to be fair, though, this it's is going to have longevity. What you've written is really, really good because it's going to it's going to get shared. It's going to become a reference point for other people. It's going to be referred to. It, it it has things like that have a life after just throwing rocks and participating in a collective discussion. It has much more fidelity than trying to knock out a few words every day it's really interesting to hear that because i was so like i thought it was way too long i and when we started the blog there was there were thoughts about having like an, a, a maximum word limit for every uh, blog post because it, i mean generally people tend to read things that are short right and it's uh, but it, so we we, didn't, we never had a limit and things mm. just came out the way they came and and i always try to keep things short or uh, and and in the end it just doesn't yeah, I don't know. So the the format just evolved as it as it is, and that that ERP blog post was, in my opinion, was a monster. I mean, it was even way longer in its previous versions. Uh, and uh, but so I was really, I, I thought nobody would read that, and and it was quite successful, and that was really good too. It was really good experience. Yeah. Like I think it's definitely an underserved space, underserved space of actually having these these long form things. Um, because you know the internet is full of these short sort of three four hundred word opinions, but a lot of stuff um, you know people write short articles for the sake of writing writing short articles. Um, in this, yeah. So basically, you ha you have this. Um, what what I like about your blog is that at the start, at least, you actually have this idea of this is going to take fifteen minutes to read, or there's an actual indication of how long the actual post is going to read. I think that's fantastic because he goes, okay, cool. This is going to be 15 minutes. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to do this thing. Um, and so many of these issues, you can't actually, you know, uh, cover them in a three or 400 word um, article. Yeah. You need to actually go into depth and uh, some things just need to take as long as they need to take. So it's a, fan it's a fantastic approach. And on top of that, having the, um, you know, I think a, a lot of stuff actually comes out too, uh, too premature. And uh, I like this idea that you actually were able to um, to peer review um, each other's posts. And I, th I think, you know, so much of um, that it's almost in, in a way of doing your own little little, little, little preprint that you can put that out there and actually yeah. get some opinions before doing out there. Because 
Uh, I, 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 had a, I had a good experience, well, some, some would say a bad experience, earlier this year of I was putting together a paper and I thought, oh, you know, I should probably put a preprint out there just to make sure I'm actually saying something not stupid. Um, as, it, as it turns out, I did say a lot of things that were a bit stupid. Well, not not, not stupid, <laughs> but a lot of the things were, were a little bit incorrect. So, And the thing is, if I actually published or submitted a lot of the things were a little bit incorrect. Some of the, thi- some of the things were, were, were incorrect. <laughs> well, it, it, was, it was... Okay, I could have done, I could have done the paper a lot better. And the thing is, if I actually had submitted to a journal, chances are they probably would have accepted it. Um, and then only then people would have gone, hang on a minute, I think you've... Um, you know, you've uh, yeah. Yeah. stretching things a bit here, but the fact that I actually put it as a preprint Stretch. and then got a lot of people going, "Hey, I think you, things are a bit wrong here." It was so much, a much, much better way of doing it, and yeah. blog posts doing it that way as well, especially for long form stuff. It's um, it's it, it's fantastic. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think um, the every 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 post has improved uh, after sort of a, a review and I totally agree with you on the um, point about preprints um, to me you know it's almost like uh, you're outsourcing your own um, f- your own fact checking or something so you can it's it's a real resource to be able to just have a few more sets of eyes on it and especially not just your friends and not just people who are uh, tempted to be really um, really nice to you so a, a preprint just um Let's everyone hit you with how, as hard as as they can, and that's the best thing that can happen to you because you want you want to be you want the stuff to be right. Yeah, you, you don't want to. I mean, yeah, you also want to feel good, and it may not feel good, but it will feel much better to have a final paper that's better, uh, and that doesn't receive all that tough criticism that the first version does. So I think that's a great way to go. Yeah, but mm. here, here's a question though. Um, quite often, um, preprints for more sexy topics are more likely to be read and get comments. Um, so th- this was the one that I did was, was was quite a sexy topic, and a lot of people read it, and there's a lot of comments. But then I've done an, an, another preprint recently, which uh, you know this this work uh, I think personally was more interesting. <laughs> uh, took it, it was uh, maybe, maybe took me like a year to put the paper together, and uh, you know a few people had some nice comments on Twitter. Um, but then in the actual preprint itself, no one's commented on it. How do you get people to actually comment on stuff that isn't sort of this sort of sexy methodology stuff? Well, I, I'm certainly the wrong person to ask because I have, <laughs> I have like one publication and I'm um, so early in my career, I really have no idea. But um, what you say, I've, I've heard that so many times. I think even Dorothy Bishop has that had a blog post about that. Or it mentions it several times. I think that the most, most often the, the pieces that are most valuable to you yourself, so the papers you are most proud of, are um, not the ones that are most cited usually. Uh, and sometimes they are substantially worse off than the most cited papers. And even I, even with my blog posts experience so far, I've, I've felt that. So I think my last blog post, my latest blog post um, is, is a bit more, it has not as much substance as um, something I did earlier. And it's received so much attention, I feel kind of bad about it. And I think that's just how people work, right? I mean, if anything is has a lot of substance, it's it's hard to get at. And if you if you're not forced to read that paper, if you have that on your on your to read list, uh, and it's that open tab in your browser, and it's just it just requires a lot of effort. At some point, you're going to close that tab because it's not that important to you, and it's been open for too long anyway. Uh, and and the easy stuff that's so sexy that's the one you, you just skim quite quickly. So I think I don't I don't really know how to get more comments in. I mean, you can certainly in, you can always in, invite people to 
comment, I suppose. Like yeah. us, us people, you know. Someone, someone but... doing that. someone doing that recently. They put a preprint up and then went out and deliberately solicited mm-hmm. reviews. So if it had if it had four people that read it, who left four separate comments, and you you you're batting, you know, yeah. amazingly. I, I guess. So it's just a matter of it. It makes it easy and transparent for people to find it after you sort of poke them and go, oh, have a look at that. Yeah, I, I, I saw I, the, um, the 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 bioarchive guy, or the guy who runs or who started up bioarchive. Is, is, um, someone was saying, well, you know, is there any, any way of actually setting up a, a, a reminders thing? Because bioarchive, as, as an example of, of, of one sort of preprint server, um, would do so much better if um, if people actually committed to, hey, I, I'm going to I'm going to review one paper, um, one paper a year, two papers a year. I'm going to actually send this paper to my own journal club and at the end of this journal club, we're going to sort of collate mm-hmm. all the stuff that was said and put this on. Can you imagine how much better the standard yeah. of preprints would be if, you know, almost every pre or, or for every preprint you submit to BioArchive or to your favourite preprint uh, server, you, you know, pledge to, to, to do it yourself. Kind of in the, um, the, the, the same sort of way as PeerJ in that when you actually um, have that subscription there... You uh, is it? You're a subscriber, James. Is it one per year? Is that the you meant to review one? Uh, it depends. It uh, you you are you are supposed to. I, I don't know how my membership is still current because I'm perfectly happy to review anything if the rest of my life is anything to go by. Throwing rocks at stuff is sort of a bi-weekly occurrence at minimum. Um. You, you are, I think you were supposed to originally. The problem is I, I don't think the growth is static across all fields. So I don't think anyone's ever sent me anything from there. I'm perfectly happy to review it, but none of it ever, ever turned up. It's supposed to be, though. I mean, look, they, they did start with the idea that if you want to have something that has a community kind of feel where the journal is serving everyone then you are a participant of a community where you are not only publishing but looking at the acceptance of something for publication or not and that seems reasonable yeah i was uh, i've i'm just thinking about this for the very first time actually i think it's an interesting point i mean we we often hear that the the whole um, publishing system is overloaded right so people have to um do so many reviews or just yesterday um some um there was some twitter conversation of people like editors complaining about inviting i don't know 12 reviewers um for for one paper and getting like one or two to do it or even 24 people or um and like say people saying we have too too many papers are submitted and too few people are reviewing and i think the the balance of actually submitting something to the old school publication system and reviewing for the same system is probably a lot better than for preprints because preprints you can just throw out as as many as you want right and there's no you don't even think about that you would need to review any of them so the the balance will probably be um even worse than for for the old school system so i don't know how how do we how do you do we deal with that i, I guess the prj approach is, is a really good one so kind of to to again build a, a community around any of 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 that uh, around the system like that Definitely, hmm. definitely a way to go. Now we um, it's something it's something to consider. That's for sure. We we were just b- before um, discussing blogging, and I just want to circle back to that. And um, especially with the with the sort of blogs that you're doing that are more long form, 
Um, how do you see the, the benefits of doing that long-form blogging when, in a sense, you could actually be spending that time writing papers? <laughs> what do you see as the, as, as, as the benefits of doing this? <laughs> it's a bit of a painful question because yeah. <laughs> I spent way too much time on writing a blog post. Uh, and yeah, I, I probably shouldn't spend quite that much uh, time on it. I, I still hope that I get a bit quicker over time. Um, well, I don't I don't actually know. I mean, at at the point that I'm at now I'm not like the alternative wouldn't be writing papers but of course I have other things to do that may be more important for my career but then again um, this is great for my career so many great things have happened since we started that blog so many more people uh, mm. know us and approach us for things so for example we um, all of us were in, got invited to um, a, a symposium on, on open science in, in April in, in Leipzig for some um, neuroscience meeting uh, and Martin and I actually went and that was the first time I was ever invited to, to present anything so it was very exciting um, stuff like that happens so it, it has a huge benefit in terms of well I mean not not as much as adding to my publication list but in terms of people knowing me and getting invited to things getting new op opportunities to do things um, and also I learned so much from writing blog posts and uh, mm. especially for the ones that require a lot of, of research um, in a way um, it, I, I learned so much and I, I get better I get better at writing of course I, I hope at least <laughs> and and I learn I understand the things that I'm writing about so it's a way to force yourself to, to learn something new as well yeah for sure well, look, there's, there's lots of advantages over writing a paper especially as a, the vast majority of the time a blog has one author um, and insulation between levels of authors and what they expect and how long it takes them to get back to you. I wrote a review paper fairly recently and we committed to sending it to someone for a, a, a general sort of over-reading kind of thing. She may have the ability to add something, an author sort of contribution. She may just go, oh yeah, this is good, but it's been six weeks. So you you have an agility with a blog post you don't normally have. Yeah. Um, it still it still counts as it's it's not it's not an unacademic document. And your author uh, as as an author your your audience in this sense is exactly the kind of people who want to be part of a community of scientists in the first place. Yeah. So it's not it's not some neutral activity that you're just doing for your own kind of amusement. And you can you can frame it in terms of yeah, it's good for my career, but it's 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 a, it, it's a new part of communicating within an ecosystem of ideas. Yeah, yeah, totally. And you just reminded me that actually, um, for the um, the the blog post I did on on ERP, so that was that was a blog post on um, four papers that researched how infants perceive biological motion uh, and if they can. Um, uh, um, they can detect biological motion um, or have any special preference for it compared to non-biological motion, so to say. Um, and uh, I was actually, uh, I, I was offered to submit that as a paper by two different journals. And two I different journals? 
Well, yeah, after one of one editor uh, said that on Twitter, someone else felt compelled to uh, kind of counter that uh, offer. But um, I, I haven't I haven't done that yet, but it's on my on my list. Um, so it it wouldn't take too much effort to turn the blog post into into an actual paper. Um, so there's not even that trade off in that case. And yeah, I'm not I'm not seeing drawbacks anymore. Yeah, yeah and and also I, I've heard I've heard Daniel Larkin say that a lot. That kind of uh, things start out on Twitter and then they evolve into a blog post and then they evolve into a paper. Uh, and yeah, and and James, what you just said, I totally agree. Uh, there are so many more people are reading that to begin with uh, the blog posts, um, and mm. uh, this is this is a way of communicating. This is a way of reaching the goal that we do want to reach. Uh, and I'm not that concerned with actually doing things that are, because they're good for my career anyway. I'm I'm just saying if you are concerned with that, then even then it could be good to write blogs. It's a great way of doing it. There you go. That's what we need. It's, we're continually saying there should be more stuff in this sort of uh, uh, FSBS. Is a my personal. It's, it's not really an acronym. What is it? An abbreviation? I don't even know. It, it, it doesn't stand for anything. It just means for scientists by scientists. There's, I, I realized that the vast majority of media that I was consuming that was about something even vaguely to do with work at some point in time was something that was written not by a science journalist. Not by Malcolm fucking Gladwell, but by someone with technical expertise in some area that was producing media that was designed to be written by other scientists. So they were explaining things that were still interesting within the, like the, the realm. It retains a technical fidelity to it, but it is being explained between parties of people who do and don't understand it better. You get a much better idea of whether or not someone writes well, whether or not they're communicating what they need to communicate properly, and having read a lot of really old papers recently um like the oldest one recently is a case study by a guy called maxwell from 1902 um papers before sort of 1960 resemble a blog post in more stylistic elements than they resemble a modern paper (laughs) Because there's it, the the language is more expositive. They they they're willing to put in asides about if you well if you don't understand that you should consider X Y Z. <laughs> <laughs> consider, consider the humble frog. It, yeah. It's more. It, it's 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 language. It's language that's more accessible. Yeah. And some of them are, are well written in the literary sense. That's another thing you do well. Seeing as we're on the. Um, Seeing as we're on the bandwagon of why you're great, um, I think you I think you write particularly well in English. Well, thank you. Um, that's yeah. Well, I wouldn't say it if it wasn't true. If it was shit, I'd bring that up at this particular. <laughs> time. Um, if if I ever write something how, you think how? is shit, then please tell me. Oh, I will. Don't worry about that. I was I was curious. How does how does the the experience of doing a degree in German cross over with doing science communication in English? <laughs> that's a very good question. Um, that's a really good question. So my undergraduate was in German. Uh, at the end, some very few courses were in English, maybe. I think most were in German, okay. and I did my masters in, sure. in, in Glasgow. But um, well, that's not in English. That's in Glasgow. <laughs> but uh, but the, uh, the lecturers, the lecturers and whatnot, would not all be from Glasgow, obviously. Yeah. it's an international faculty yeah. like every other one. Yeah. Okay. Um, no, but um, 
So I, I actually, I decided to write my bachelor's thesis in English and I could have written it in German. And I think most people wrote it in German. And one of the reasons was that um, I didn't even really know how to write academically in German because all of the literature is English, obviously. At least, uh, well, there are some, some old German papers that are a bit weird to read. Um, and also mm. all of the, um, the terms that we use, the technical terms are usually the English ones. So for some things, I wouldn't even have known how to express them in German properly. And, and that's like, that would have been really weird. So I kind of, at a relatively early point, I just switched to, to English for academic writing in general. And, and I would never look back. So mm. any time I actually find it, I find it much easier to write in English in general. So it's such a beautiful language. Like, it's, honestly, I, I, I love English so much. And it's because you can express things much more, um, um, much more concisely, and still in an open and accessible way and you're much more flexible uh, than in German and I guess the advantage of German is that we're a bit more precise with words so there are some concepts that you can maybe pin down better in German but the great thing about that slightly increased vagueness in English is that you're so much more flexible and you can say so many more things and um yeah, I, I, I just love it. I think it lends itself much better to, to academic communication because if you, if you take... So, James, what you just said, that, that older papers are written more accessibly, that's really interesting. Never thought about that before, but it makes sense, right? So if you start out at the beginning, um, it's just about communicating your research, right? So, so getting your point across. And then at some, times, at some point, you, this develops into that research system where it becomes like it... It, it deviates from that initial idea of just getting the point across to some to to a um, sort of a culture, and you have to signal certain things, and you have to sound important, and uh, you have to sound as you, as if you know your shit, and if you use many technical terms, then it's 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 uh, it's better. Um, and uh, I think that's that's something that I started out with when I started writing in uh, as a student. I thought I'd have I would have to make complicated sentences because uh, you have to sound important and that's like the, the worst thing you can do and German is so much better for doing that like if you read badly written German papers they are like by they are so much worse than badly written English papers it's it's amazing hmm. yeah that is that is interesting uh, do, do you know a, a brief aside do you know what I find extremely funny is complicated German sentences that have English loan words or places in them <laughs> because the, the, the technical German sounds so utterly inaccessible and uh, I can't I can't even really do a parody of it but it, it will it will go for 10 seconds and then then someone will say social priming yeah, I can't imagine. I can't imagine how that looks. <laughs> it's even it's even it's even funnier in Australia, where uh, uh, people obviously speak German the way that they've been taught, but then they they speak English in <laughs> speak English in an Australian way. Das ist richtig noch Wiesentheiner Campbelltown. Is um is a is a, a great pleasure to me. <laughs> There, I told I told you it was an aside. That wasn't a particularly good point. That's fascinating. Um, I have heard I'm I'm similar first... opinions before. Oh, wow! Sorry, that was crossover there. You go. Sorry, uh, no, I just I'm I'm the first German guest. Is that right? You have a you've had a quite a, a Dutch uh, bias so far. I think with your guests, if I'm if I remember correctly. Yeah, Dutch American 
uh, English. Um, yeah, first first, first yeah. German guest. <laughs> yeah. You're gonna you're gonna make us commit to more. This is um, if you're gonna say nice things about the English language, um, <laughs> I've heard similar things from other Germans. You know, it's like I well, I learned I learned to write in English, and honestly, I prefer it. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. It is it is really a historical curiosity a lot of the time where original literature from I mean it, it depends on who the original authors were so some people who's especially people in the, the history of psychiatry um, history and philosophy of science have to learn other languages or have some kind of familiarity with them so they can read the actual original papers um, psychiatrists are, used to be at least reasonably notorious for that but um, no, not so much anymore. This is a, a sort of a lingua franca aspect of English. And people debate whether or not that's a good thing. But um, the people I've heard offer the strongest defences of it are European people who've <laughs> learned English to communicate with it. <laughs> well, actually, um, I, I, uh, so my, my dad is one of the people who constantly complains about everything being in, in English. Uh, so he's actually made an effort to to read like my master's thesis and stuff like that, and I I just don't, I don't really understand why. I think it's really um, it's 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 really cute that he tries that, um and and he's also reading my Twitter account and uh he's he was very happy when I got on board with a real scientist uh with the German account um so he could read something in 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 German and he was and, he, he, and some of us and his some point, of us have master's thesis in English that no one's ever read yeah exactly especially exactly. not our parents yeah and and maybe not oh, yeah no I'm not going to do, go into that but um so he his point is that it would be much more accessible if I if I wrote more in German or if I communicated science in German more and I think the opposite is the case I mean of of course maybe if you take all German people then maybe I could reach some more who struggle with English but in general English is a language that so many people have access to like more than to any other single language I mean I, I don't know if it, if that's true for the whole population of the earth but um for like our field so and mm. I think English does a great job because it's relatively easy to learn at least to to understand it I think yeah I, I, it's going to be a while before we agree on something like Esperanto for science <laughs> which, which would be super handy but it would probably end up having English loan words that's the, that's the problem when you start when you define concepts in a language yeah you end up capturing the the conversation about them mm. Yeah. So you know, for for better or for worse, I guess for in the in the interim, at least we're stuck with it. <laughs> yeah, language fascism is what it is. Oh, it's not really. It's fine. I mean, you do, could... do they do they dub um do they dub English shows into German or do yeah. they have English subtitles? No, they they dub them like overwhelmingly, and it's it's okay. really it's unbearable. I think it's it's so weird to like once you got into it's if you grow up with it it's it's like it's completely normal but once you start um watching some stuff uh, in the original version and then go back to the dubbed version you can it's it's un, it's unbearable really and and that's at that point you don't ever want to see anything dubbed at least that's what's like for me um yeah i, I don't know if, i think many other many other countries they just use subtitles and i think um i i, I think um I think more German teenagers and young people are um, actually watching um, English speaking uh, English language t 
television shows now because of Netflix and stuff like that. And I think that will be, mm. I guess that will be great for, for them learning English and, and pronunciation and stuff like that. So I'm quite, quite kind of excited about the fact that not everything is available in German right away and people have access to it right away because of the internet. Yeah, I I don't think I've ever seen a German film dubbed into English. It's always subtitles. Mm. It, it ruins it. It ruins it. Not just it ruins the fidelity of yeah. everything. It doesn't have the right feel. Yeah, exactly. How are you supposed to express something in the language that it's written? You don't even need to understand it. Have you ever watched a? I don't know much about anime. I'm not that kind of nerd, but I have seen a couple now. And I saw one where they put English voices over the top, and it was the most ridiculous shit show I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> this, you, you can't you, you can't you can't yell about truth and justice as lightning strikes giant robots in English. It's just not done. <laughs> I think we're losing focus, Dan. Well, okay, let's. Um, we won't take up much more of your time, Anne, but we just want to um, ask you um, a, a few more questions. Um, just a few quick-fire questions. Um, one of them is, uh, what is uh, some of the worst advice that you hear given to early career researchers? Um, I've, I find that really hard to answer. I don't, I don't have a good answer. I just generally don't like it when uh, people think that they have to focus on, um, on stuff that might advance their career. Like uh, to do things because they think they have to do it, or because they think it's expected from them, and not and and um, do and not do other things that they would like to do. Uh, I, I, I like I, I'm st I've I've I'm yeah I'm I'm foregoing the the short fire stuff already, but I think it's That's so right. important. It's it's so important to um to be enthusiastic about things and i think it will get you much further and if you if you have a natural interest in what you're doing if you um can you can put so much mm. more energy into it and just doing something because you think yeah but that might be might look better on my cv um that kind of takes the soul out of things right and you don't you have no sure way of knowing that that this will be a benefit and what happens is that you end up spending your present time in uh doing something that you'd rather not do maybe or or not doing something you'd rather yeah. do so it's it's bad yeah, for, for, for sure. the... you're gonna have enough of that anyway so yeah do you so... wish i heard that during my phd <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i'm not saying i mean you, you will always have to make compromises right i mean you can't mm. just sit uh, sit in the office and, and eat cookies all day it's not going to work like that obviously but um yeah um are you are, did you just criticize my plan in advanced bakery stuff <laughs> Oh, you should team up with uh, with Julia, um, with Julia Rora. She's uh, well, though she's more into cupcakes, but she's doing. She's been doing some cookies research earlier this year. I think you should get in touch. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> cookies research. I'm getting there. Ah, next question, Dan. Let's oh, go. Um, who do you uh, who do you think we should invite onto the show next? Um, who should we talk to? <laughs> uh you could i don't know you could invite have you thought about inviting Stuart Ritchie he's been he's been um writing the first um replication of uh the BEM paper 2011 Ooh, he has been on the radar yeah yeah um and i also think the title of of that paper is is one of the best ones i know so I mean, the original BEM paper is called feeling the future Right? And and uh, Stuart's uh, paper is called "Failing the Future," which I think is nice. 
Um, love, a good, love a good title. <laughs> but it was also I was also thinking maybe I, I don't know if you've if you've considered that, but um, as, just as a listener of your podcast, and I am a listener, uh, and I think uh, it's 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 really great what you're doing. Uh, I think what would be really fascinating to hear is some more um, more of an adversarial uh, thing. So if you could invite someone who maybe. Uh, who may have very different opinions uh, than you on some of the open science things, maybe. And uh, I don't know if this is easy to or feasible uh, to do, but um, I'd be really interested in, in hearing like really tough criticism mm. on some things rather than just uh, people agreeing on everything all the, all the time. <laughs> this is not a criticism of your podcast yeah, at all. This is just sure, a, a general sure. no, thing, no, no. you know, like a, a general... No, that's 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 a good point. I think it's a, it's an outgrowth of the fact that we started off as a as a as a conversation, and Dan and I have a incredibly long and rich history of mutual sort of reasonably antagonistic, but essentially friendly bullshitting, and the theme continued from there. <laughs> um, so we've not really thought of it in terms of oh, we're going to go head to head now. Because, you know, I mean, we agree on an awful lot of stuff, but we also have a lot of mutual antagonism. <laughs> so that's a that's a that's a really that's a really good one. We're going to help hold our feet to the fire and and uh, bring it bring in some people and and raise that temperature a bit. You got any more questions, Dan? That's all for today. Uh, so thanks oh. for. <laughs> oh, I have, can I say one more thing? Before go for it. Yes, of course you. Can. Um, be, before the break, we were talk like you asked if uh, what I think people who would want who want to um, start looking into open science where where they could start. And and one thing that I didn't mention then, I think it's usually important, is just social media. And um, people are being so helpful on Twitter and also on Facebook in the PsychMap group, for example. Uh, if you just post a question to anything, you will have a ton of comments in no time. There have also been people who have started to assemble um, open science uh, syllabi on the OSF. So different people who have been teaching these things, making their material available, other people drawing all of that together. Um, so there's so much, so there are so many resources and you can access all of mm. them through social media and you should absolutely get on Twitter if you're not. Uh, very good get amongst it James took that <laughs> advice six months ago never I don't have to take that personally anymore <laughs> I usually open I do what I do with every other form of media is open up Twitter yell close Twitter <laughs> come back later oh the Bayesians are fighting again <laughs> <laughs> thanks for thanks for listening and uh, we will be back with an episode very soon bye bye for now and thank you Anne <laughs>